God, thank you for this day. Thank you that we're here today. I ask that you would uh, help us to enter into a place of mental stillness today where we are open to hear from you, that we would be sensitive to your spirit, that we'd be honest about who we are, where we are, what we're going through, that we'd be willing to acknowledge our need to change, and that you would actually do the work of change in us so that we would walk away from here looking and acting more like Jesus in this city and in the world. We ask all this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The title of my sermon today is Delight in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. So in 2006, a book came out that made waves in both the church and in the world. And this book was so popular because this book claimed to contain the formula that all of the wealthiest and most successful people in the world use to acquire their wealth and success. They said it's not by chance that people end up on top. It's because they know this formula. And this book was called The Secret. Does anyone remember The Secret? Okay, cool. Uh, anyone read The Secret? Okay, all right, cool, cool. So The Secret contained in it what is known as the law of attraction. The law of attraction basically says that if you focus your mind on certain things, you will attract them to yourself. And it's a law because the universe, like gravity, will rain these things down on you if you just focus your attention on these cars or these houses or these jobs or whatever it is you want in life. And one of the most popular ways people practice the law of attraction was through vision boards, where you'd get that, you know, that poster board, and you cut out a picture of your car and the man you want, or the woman you want, and uh, you know, the house you want, and you focus on these things every day, and what do you know, these things will eventually pop up in life. And some of you who aren't familiar with the law of attraction may think this sounds pretty hokey kind of silly, like, do people really believe that? And it's like, yeah, people really believe that. And The Secret isn't some small-time thing. Secret was a bestseller. Secret sold millions of copies. And very successful people endorsed The Secret, among many I can name, is Oprah. And Oprah is one of the people who actually made The Secret very successful. She brought the author on her show and endorsed it by saying that she, too, practiced the law of attraction and she could attribute her success to The Secret's method as well. A few years later, uh, Oprah, not to knock at her, but she's just a good example of this, Oprah uh, continued to endorse the law of attraction. And, and about three years ago, she was on the Stephen Colbert show, and they were talking about their favorite Bible verses. And Colbert asked Oprah, what is your favorite Bible verse? And she said, it is Psalm 37.4, which says this, Delight thyself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. He asked, well, what does that verse mean to you? How do you interpret that? She said, it says to me, if you focus on being a force for good, then goodness will come, which is also the third law of motion, which is also karma, which is also the golden rule. And Colbert responded, so basically that verse says the same thing the secret says. And she said, yeah, it's basically all the same thing. Doing good things, focusing on good things, causes good things to happen back on you. And when you read that verse that Oprah quoted by itself, I could see how you could get there. In isolation, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you your heart's desire. Seems to say if you do this thing, delighting yourself in the Lord, whatever that might be, we'll get to that, your heart's desire will be fulfilled. The things you want most in life 
will come your way. So we're talking about that verse today. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you your heart's desire. Who's heard that verse before? All right. Who has used that verse to encourage someone? Who's had that verse used on them? Who's been abused by that verse? (laughs) Who's been disappointed by the verse? Who's still waiting for that, that desire to be fulfilled? You've been delighting in that car, that car you wanted. They don't make it anymore, right? You're delighting and Herbalife fell through, right? It didn't work out. Who's been confused by that verse? It seems to, it seems to offer something really important. I mean, it's a really uh, promising formula. And you say, well, how do you actually make this work? Does this actually mean what people say it means? Because both believers within the church and non-believers outside of the church have seemed to use this verse as a formula to kind of get God to get what we want, right? To kind of get God to give us the things we want. But we're going to see today this, that when we treat God as a means to an end, we miss the point entirely. And my big idea today is this. God is not the means, God is the end. God is not the means, God is the end. And my two points are this. Point one, God is not the means. Point two, God is the end. All right? So before I explain exactly what I mean by this, I want us to look at the surrounding context of this verse. So if you have a Bible, you could turn with me to Psalm 37. Our main verse is verse 4, but I want us to read verses 1 through 11 together. So I'm going to start reading. You can follow along with me. Psalm 37, 1. Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong. For they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Making your righteousness shine like the dawn. Your justice like the noonday. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by the one who prospers in his way. By the person who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. For evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while, the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he will not be there, but the humble will inherit the land, inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. So my first point I said is God is not the means. And the point of this passage that we just read is this. Israel, who were the people of God in the Old Testament, God's people, were in a place where they noticed that the other people groups who weren't following God seemed to be receiving all of these material blessings, but they, God's covenant people, were lacking these material blessings. So you would think that this verse was saying Guys, you're missing out. You should be getting all the things that they have. Here's how you can go ahead and get these things. Because the people who are practicing injustice, the people who are doing evil, the people who are not honoring God, are getting all the good things in life, and you are not experiencing these blessings. But as we'll see, this verse is not designed 
to tell the Israelites how they can acquire the material blessings that the other people have. Instead, they're actually in this verse being called away from their jealousy, being called away from their anger, and they are giving perspective. And the perspective is this, that these things that you're valuing so much, these things that these other people have in excess are fleeting. These things are not worth setting your heart on. And in fact, your deepest desires can be fulfilled even if you don't get these things you want so badly. So stop feeling bad, they're saying to the Israelites. Stop being jealous. You believe the lie that life is unfair because the wicked are blessed, as you've interpreted blessing. But you see, that's not a complete understanding of blessing. Instead, what this verse says is this. If you want to really be blessed... If you really want to experience fulfillment, if you really want to understand satisfaction that goes way down to the deepest recesses of your hearts, then do this. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desire. Do you see now how in context, this verse is actually saying the opposite of what we use it for? We often say that this verse gives us a formula to get God to give us the things we want. But what's actually happening is this, that instead of saying God is the way to get you what you want, this verse is saying these things don't offer you true fulfillment, but God is the source of true fulfillment. And the reason why we run into these problems when we interpret the Bible, the reason why we take verses and make them mean stuff like this is because we fail to see the stark difference between God's goals and our goals. You see, our goals are pretty simple as humans. At the end of the day, we just want life to be better. We just want life to be easier. We just want more money. We just want more things. We just want vacations. I mean, why wouldn't you want these things? These are good things. Why wouldn't you want your life to be more comfortable? That's our goal in life. At the end of the day, some form of that is your goal. And the problem is this. We've assumed that our goals are the same as God's goals. We assume that God's goals are what our goals are for our life. And we've then imported this mindset and our goals into the way we interpret the Bible and into the way we interpret the world. And the problem is this. When you go about living your life in a way that says, God endorses all of my goals, and he's supposed to give me all these things I want, you are then telling yourself that God has made you a promise he has never made you. Your comfort, your fulfillment, your goals and deepest desires being met are important to God. They matter to God, but they have never been God's main goal for your life. And this brings us to the core issue we see in Christianity, not only in America, but in the world, and it's this. We treat God as a means to an end instead of treating God as an end in and of himself. Do you see that difference there? If you can treat God as a way to get something, or you can treat God as a thing you're trying to get. Those are two very different ways to live, because you got to understand this. God is not a path to wealth. God is not the path to health. God is not the path to political power. God is not the path to fame. God is not the path to influence. God is not the path to anything, but God is the destination. 
Do you see the difference there? Because as soon as we've decided we're going to take God for a spin in order to see what he can do for us, we've missed the boat entirely. And listen, I'm not knocking your dreams and desires and all that stuff because we're, all, we're wired to find fulfillment. We have desires because God made us with desires. We have things we want to be fulfilled and those are good things and I pray these things come true but you have to step back sometimes be honest and recognize that some of these things you want, some of these things you are after so badly aren't really what you want deep down but they are just a symptom of your need and desire for God. That person you just got to have, that job you just got to have, that fame you just got to have might not be what your heart wants deep down, but at the end of the day, it might really be a need for intimacy with God that you just have yet to experience. So what do we do? We got to do this. We got to reject the toxic idea that God is a genie that we've worked out some deal with. Because what we do is this. We say, okay... uh, Delight myself in the Lord, he'll give me the desires of my heart. So I'm going to go to church, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, I'm going to join a small group, I'm even going to tithe, I'm even going to give money to church, I'm going to go on a mission trip, I'm going to do all these things, and let's make sure now that God gives me the things I want most in life. What we've done there is we've worked out a deal with God that he never made with us, and now we're mad at him. Do you see the difference there? We've gone about saying, God, you you created a sticker chart for us that if we check off all these boxes at the end of the day, we get a prize like we did when we were in second grade. And God is saying, I don't remember ever setting up the sticker chart. I never said that's how things work. And now we're walking around mad at God because he didn't give us the things we wanted even though we did everything we're supposed to do. The problem is God never said that's the way things work. You're not being called to work out a deal for God, a deal with God, and you're not being called to work for God. I want you to see that. We don't understand that because we only know about working out deals and working for things. That's the way our world works. That's the way we've been treated since we were a little kid. But here we are not told to do that. We are told here to delight in God. We're told here to delight in God, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight in God. Not work for God, not work out a deal with God. So what have we done? Since we only know about work, and we only know about working out deals, we've reinterpreted delight to basically be code for working for God, right? We basically say, well, delighting in God must just mean doing Christian stuff, and then I get the things I want most in life. But what we've done there is completely brushed past the word delight and redefined it as some religious work. The problem is that's not what delight means at all. Delight is such an innocent, such a pure, such a, such a gentle word. And when I think of delight, I do not think about work. I do not think about meeting some standard. I do not think about earning something. I do not think about working at a deal when I think about delight. Does anyone else think about that when I think about delight? Does delight mean work to you in any other situation? No, it doesn't. So that's where we're going to spend some time on delighting because we are really, really bad at delighting in things. We don't know how to enjoy anything anymore, you know? can't enjoy, you, you wait all week, you say, I'm going to work out all week, I'm going to eat right, and on Friday night, I'm going to get my pint of ice cream, right? And Friday comes, you go to Target, get the exclusive Ben and Jerry flavors, right? And, and you go back to your house, and you finally eat it, and you're miserable because you feel so guilty that you're eating it. Can't even enjoy something. Can't even ruin everything. We ruin everything. Can't enjoy anything, right? 
So we got to learn how to delight in God because we don't have to delight in anything. And once you truly delight in God, once God becomes your delight, once you can actually enjoy God, you will stop seeing God as the path to your goal and you will start seeing God as the goal in and of itself. Do you see the difference there? Delight in the Lord. So first, first point, God is not the means. God's not the means to something. Second point is God is the end. So I said the goal here isn't to impress God. The goal here to, to get your heart's fulfillment isn't to work for God, isn't to work at a deal for God, but to delight in God. And I said delighting in God isn't code for work. Delighting in God isn't code for church. Delighting in God means what you think it means. It means actually enjoying and delighting God. And he said, that's so spacey. That's so up here. How, does, how do I actually delight in God? And here's the key to delighting in God. You cannot delight in God until you experience God delighting in you. You cannot, you will not delight in God until you experience God delighting in you. You cannot enjoy God until you experience God enjoying you. And some of your red flags just went up and said, I don't know about all that. God ain't supposed to delight in us. We are filthy. We are sinners. We are all these things. God tolerates us. That's the difference. Stay with me for a minute because here's the thing. One of the most difficult things for us to do, humans in general, but Christians as well, is for us to receive God's pleasure in us. One of the most difficult things for, for us to do is this. You may be able to accept on a theological, cerebral level that God loves you, right? But you have a much harder time believing that God likes you. Do you see the difference there? You may be able to say, yeah, sure, God loves me. The Bible says so, da-da-da. But God doesn't like me. The thing is this. If you are going to delight in God, you got to believe and understand that God doesn't just love you, but God likes you. That God enjoys... Someone here today needs to hear that God likes them. That God enjoys you. That you are valuable to God. That you make God happy. That he's happy just to know you. But see, that's beyond what most of us can comprehend. That's beyond what most of us are comfortable hearing. And that's certainly beyond what most of us are comfortable saying about ourselves, that God delights in me. It's no surprise why. I mean, were most of you taught that God's mostly angry at you, but he let you off the hook? <laughs> that God's mostly disappointed, God's mostly angry, but he found a loophole in his own system. And he said, let me see this. If I kill my son... Then I can deal with them, and uh, we'll make things right somehow. But I, I really don't like them, though, but we're just going to fix this little thing, and we'll save some. You're taught that. Or you're taught that God does love you, but only as long as you're, like, keeping it 85% good. Like, once you're, like, as long as you're retaining some level of faithfulness and church work. Like, God loves me, but once, once I'm, like, slipping, once, once I'm, you know, uh, not reading the devotional book I was supposed to be reading. Once I'm like not showing up for my small group, I'm like down at a 40% with God, I'm down at 30%, and I keep drifting away. And it's no surprise we think that because what were your parents like? How did your parents raise you? I mean, this, this is basic stuff here, right? I mean, growing up in your house, as good as your parents may have been, did you feel more love when you were performing better? 
Did you feel more valuable when you're performing better? Or did you walk around with parents who were basically angry at you all the time, but just tolerated you and told you better be grateful you have a place to live. You better be grateful you even have food on the table, right? I mean, how did teachers treat you? How did coaches treat you? I'm sure there's good people and all that, but at the end of the day, we were psychologically uh, created by our upbringing to believe that we're only as valuable, we're only as lovable, we're only as likable as what we bring to the table and continue to maintain, right? So I'm going to flip it the other way to this and have a question for you. Did you ever consistently experience someone delighting in you simply because you exist? Have you ever experienced someone just delighting in you, just enjoying you because you exist, not because of what you're performing, not because of your gifting, not because of your skills, not because of the way you look, not because of the grades you're getting, but someone just liking you and loving you and enjoying you consistently and constantly simply because you exist based on nothing else. Most of us would say no. Most of us don't even know what that kind of delight would look like. But we do see an example of that in the Bible, and we see it in Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was being baptized, it was at the very beginning of his ministry, before he went out and did anything. Jesus hadn't done nothing yet. He was an obscure carpenter, right, from a poor neighborhood. Jesus hadn't done any miracles. Jesus hadn't died on the cross. Jesus hasn't rose from the dead. Jesus hasn't preached. Jesus hadn't done anything, right? And, and he gets baptized by his cousin in the desert. And when he comes out of the water, a voice from heaven, God the Father, speaks over him and says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You are my beloved son, with you I am very pleased. What we see here is that God is a parent that's not like us as parents or the parents we had, but we see God here who is expressing enjoyment and satisfaction and delight in his son before his son had done anything. This was the starting point of Jesus' ministry. Experiencing his father's delight was the thing that started him off on his ministry that kept him all this way. He didn't start over here and do all these things, and at the end of his ministry, finally, when he rose from the dead, you're my beloved son with you, I'm well pleased because you got the job done. He said that at the very beginning of his ministry when he hadn't done anything else yet. And you say, well, that's good for Jesus. Jesus, you know, his dad is God, he's God, all those things. Well, it's better off than my situation. Good for Jesus. Well, here's the thing. Elsewhere we learn in the Bible that through Jesus' death and his resurrection, his status as child, beloved son of God is shared with all of us. If you are in Jesus today, if you know Jesus today, then that status as beloved child of God is true for you as well. He says, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we could be called sons of God. I said that really fast. It was a song, I remember. I was trying to get to the point. Sons of God, right? Those same words spoken over Jesus, you're my beloved son or you're my beloved daughter, with you, I am well pleased. If you are in Jesus today, that is true for you as much as it was true for Jesus. You are his beloved daughter. You are his beloved son. With you, he is pleased. You are his beloved child who is so valuable to him. You're so valuable. Not only did he create you in his image, but he showed that you were full of insurpassable worth because he actually, as God, came and died for you. You are that valuable to him. 
Not based on how well you're doing today. Not based on how well you did this week. Not based on how consistent you are with your reading the Bible in a year plan, right? That's not what's helping you retain your status as God's child. And some of you are saying, no, no, I can't go. You're going too far for me. I can believe some of this stuff, but I cannot believe God likes me. I cannot believe God enjoys me. I cannot believe God looks at me and experiences delight. I just cannot believe that. And a few years ago, I would have kind of said, like, yeah, I'm with you on that. Like, I don't want to go that far with this, right? But what I had to understand was this, that God here is speaking from the perspective of a parent. And until I became a parent, I didn't really understand what a passage like this meant and all the other passages that talk about God being father and us being his children. So I'm a parent. Let me talk about that for a minute. So any parents here? Okay. All right. So you know. So I have two kids, uh, Ara and Soren, and they're four and two. Daughter is four. Son is two. And um, they're great. I love my kids. They're, they're, it's been super awesome having kids, saying all that at the front end of this, okay? <laughs> Throughout my life, if I would be in Target or I'd be out on the street and I would see a parent dragging some screaming kid out of the store, I would look at them with the most disgusted, belittling look. <laughs> Do you have any self-respect? That child is making a scene right now, making you look like a complete fool. That will never be me. That's me like once a week now. Very humbling experience being a parent. I would see some parents screaming in the line at the grocery store, I want this, I want this, get your child in order. It's talk to you like that. You're a grown person, child, talk to you like that. That happens to me all the time now. And it's especially difficult because I'm a pastor. And, you know, I grew up pastors. Kids are always the bad kids. So I always was self-conscious. I can't have the... My kids got to be like... I, they can't be the baddest kids. They got to be like in the middle somewhere. They're not going to be the best. I know that. But they can't be the baddest kids. And they're, not, they're not bad. They're good kids. But, but, but so, so my kids, I love my kids. My kids are great. But my kids got issues. My kids, my kids, while out. My kids hit each other, they just do things they're not supposed to do. They disrespect me in front, in front of people. They disrespect me. <laughs> I just talk about this in therapy this week, all right? Like, I make them, I'm not corny, no, my wife's not corny, but my wife's going like, to cook them kale, like a two-year-old, like he's going to eat it. Of course they don't eat it. I cook them pizza and macaroni and cheese when she's out there, and they still don't, they don't even eat that. They just play the mess out of me, right? So th- I got these kids, right? But what, so do, do my kids... Cause me frustration and anger and irritability, yes. Do my kids got work to do, yes. Do we need to, do I got to call the wrong behavior wrong? Do we got we to be on this journey together because they need to get some things right. All of that true, right? So I'm saying that right now. Do my kids need discipline? Yes. But even in the midst of all that, I still want them. They're still mine. I still like them. They still bring value to my life. That element doesn't change. I don't want to take them back, Right? I don't want to rethink being their parent. It's too late for that. I've already adopted, you know, I'm not adopted, but they're already my kids, right? <laughs> they bring me joy. They bring happiness. They add value to my life. And at the end of the day, they're kids. They're two and four. I don't expect them to act like well-mannered adults. I got to be realistic. Like, they're two. This is what a two-year-old does, okay? So it's all not so bad with his age and her age. Considered. So no matter what's going on, they're still mine. I still like them. I still want them. Like I said, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you call Jesus Lord, then God has adopted you. That's the language the Bible uses. He's your legal guardian. God is your legal father. That means he's your father. He wants you. 
You bring him happiness. You are valuable to him. You are his child. So we're not saying that your, your wrong things aren't wrong. Your wrong things are wrong. Your messed up stuff you do is still messed up. It doesn't change the fact that your dad still wants you in his house. And he knows you're human. Do you see that? Like, he doesn't expect you to be what you're not. He's not always sit there like, oh, my gosh, did he do that again? Of course you did that again. Just like when I bring my son to the beach, he, it's just a sand buffet. That's all it is. He's just there for the sand, just to eat the sand. He's not playing with the sand. He just wants to eat it. That's what he's here for. I'm here for the sand. This beach, this beach has great sand. What year is it? You know what I mean? It's... But I've had to learn that's just what my son is going to do. So when God looks at us, it's kind of like we're like two-year-olds in the sand. He's not like completely shocked when we do something crazy, okay? He's like, you know, man, I hope they grow out of this soon. Like, let's work with them. God sees us as humans, and he knows us so well as humans that he became a human. Do you see that? This isn't God up here saying, like, do better, do better. This is God who said, they're not doing better. Let me come down there. And Hebrews says he experienced everything we experience. Jesus experienced all the temptation and the testing we've experienced. And he's able to say, I know what it's like to be a human. I, I, I'm empathetic towards the human experience, and, and I'm going to save them out of that situation so they can have that status as my children without having to earn it or retain it. Do you see that? That's what the cross and the resurrection was all about. So I said earlier, God's goals versus our goals. We come to the Bible, it's always about, we always have our goals in the back of our head. We can't really help that, but we, so we always have this goal in our mind that we want life to be easier, we want life to be better, we want life to be more fun, we want to have more money. But I said, oh, those things may be well and good, but that's not actually God's goal for your life. Those things aren't actually God's goal. So what's God's goal for you? God's goal is to transform you. God's goal is to transform you. And if you have everything you want, you're not going to be transformed. Maybe you will be in like really bad ways, but not in the good ways God wants you to be transformed, right? And here's the thing. It, it, God is not just transforming us in a way that he wants to make you into upright citizens in society to make you better, more moral people. God has a plan to transform the entire world. God is going to renew all of creation. God is going to erase cancer. God is going to undo injustice. God is going to topple over broken systems. God is going to depoison the oceans. God is uplifting this entire thing. He's flipping everything over. And one day, this whole world is going to be restored and recreated and renewed. And we're going to get to live there on us. And the way God is doing this is he's starting the process of renewal with people. Every person that comes and aligns himself with God through Jesus is now an agent of the world to come. You're now an ambassador of a different world that's coming into existence, that's on the horizon. Every person that names Jesus as Lord is bearing the first fruits of the final bloom that's going to come. Do you see that? So he's transforming us, not just so we can be better people but to bring us in line with what's ultimately coming, with what he's ultimately doing. So if that means we don't get everything we want in this life, we're going to have everything one day. The point is that his goal is to transform us no matter what the cost is for that. And in order to be transformed, in order to really change. See, some of us, we were in, we're in church or we're Christians for all these years, and we go by 10 years, 20 years go by, and we're like, I don't really feel that different. I don't really feel like I'm changing. I don't really feel like I'm any better than anyone else I know. I don't really feel like I'm doing any different. I feel like the same issues I've always had are the same issues I still have. What does this talk about transformation? I know some people have these great testimonies, right? Who, who like, you know, were mafia bosses, and then they, they walked the aisle, and now they're like, you know, they're Mother Teresa now or something like that. But that's not my story. How do you change? How do we become 
transformed. The idea that God loves you, the idea that God likes you, the idea that God enjoys you and delights in you cannot just be something that stays in your head, but it has to be something that's as real to you as the chair you're sitting on, and that's what's going to transform you. That's what's going to transform you. That's what will be the thing that makes you into a different person. It has to sink deep into your bones. And one way to make this real is to do this, is to make the phrase that was spoken over Jesus very personal to yourself. I am your beloved daughter. With you, with me, you are well pleased. I am your beloved son. With me, you are well pleased. Own that prayer. Own this meditation. Own that as your own. And throughout the day, speak that. And don't just say that up here, something you're repeating. But take 10 seconds and close your eyes and imagine what it looks like for God to be delighting over you. And say that when you're about to binge on Netflix, right? Say that. God, you, you are well pleased with me. You just enjoy me. You just delight in me. Let that be real to you. Let that reality inform you throughout the day. And guess what? That's not just a good spiritual practice. That's not just a good religious practice, but that is actually something that will literally transform you from the core of your being. Because what we know now is this. In neuroscience, for years, people have known that we create neural pathways in our brain that get locked into place. So every time you learn to ride a bike, every time you experience terrible trauma, whatever it is, you have your brain structured in reaction to these different experiences that have made you into the person you are today. So the reason why you have, uh, you like this or you hate this, the reason why you're like this in a relationship, the reason why you come to church this way are all responses to different things that have happened in your life that have formed in your brain. And what they used to think is that your neural pathways were sealed. Nothing about you could be changed. You were just stuck the way you were after about 20 years old. But what they discovered in the last 10 years is something called neuroplasticity, which basically says this, that your brain is like elastic. Your neural pathways can be rewritten. The things that have made you the way you were can actually be redone and, and recreated and to make you into a different person. So basically what science is saying now is that you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you see that? That you can literally be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That if you tell yourself a different story, if you focus on different things, if, if you let yourself be informed by different realities, that those things that have made you into the person you are, the things that are unhealthy, the things that are broken, the things that are just aren't good, they can be undone and redone and give you a new brain and you'll become a new person. The process of transformation doesn't have to happen the next side of glory. The process of transformation can begin today. And as you do things, like the practice of simply repeating to yourself and imaging God delighting over you, you will actually change on a neurological level. The reality of what is real, that is more real than any of this. Anything you feel, any of your triggers, any of your traumas, those things are just feelings that your brain is responding to. But the fact that if you're in Christ, God delights you, delights in you and likes you and loves you, that is more real than any of that stuff. So what we're doing there, we're not making something else. We're simply aligning ourselves with what's really true. Do you see that? And here's what's happened. As you experience God's delight in you, as that becomes real to you, God will become your desire. Do you see that? Not what God can do for you, not what God might do, not what God is just capable of doing, but God himself. As you retrain your brain to experience God's delight in you, God himself will become your ultimate desire. To hear from God, to see God, to be with God will be something that is actually a goal to you. And you'll begin to change. You'll begin to change. And the more you experience God's delight, 
the more you'll delight in God, and you're going to enter into a cycle at that point. The more you let God's delight inform you, the more you will delight right back in God, and you'll enter into this transformative cycle that at the end of the day, you'll know you are changing because two main things are happening. Ready? Here's how you know you're going to transform. Here, here's the two ways to tell you're changing. The first thing is this. The things that used to be so important to you aren't that important anymore. The things you needed last year, the things that you had to have that you just said, I can't go by another year without this, without this person, without this job, without this thing. This has to happen. God, what do I have to do to get you to give me this? Those things will be like, eh, I could take it or leave those things. And the things you really didn't care about that much, God, reading the Bible, praying, being with God's people will actually become the thing you want the most. Do you see that? That's how you know you're changing, when your desires change. If you experience God delighting in you, you will delight in God, and your desires will begin to change. And you will see this, that your deepest desire was God all along. And as you delight in him, the desires of your heart will be filled, and you will change. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this day. God, we recognize that the call to delight in God is only possible because there's a God who delights in us. I pray for everyone here today who is just bound up in the idea that there's no way God can like them, that there's no way God can enjoy them, that they're not valuable, that you would release them from that bondage, that they would see that your pleasure in them has been accomplished through Christ And you're calling all of us to simply live in response to that. That's all in Jesus' name. Amen.